0: So a few people um, came in as we were sitting just to welcome you. My name is Tara Brock, And just a question for you all. How many of you are part of IMC? Come regularly to, can I see hands? Great. Anyone here for the first time at IMC? Well, I welcome you even though I'm not from IMC here. I'm from IMCW actually, which is the insight meditation community in Washington. And we've always kind of sensed this as one of our real Sister Sangha, we've been following closely you um, having this building and how things have been emerging. And I just want to say that you've been a real inspiration. And um, we're really, we might follow in your footsteps. We'll see. So thank you in advance. (laughs) So tonight uh, I'd like to explore the the title, as uh, Susan mentioned, of my book is Radical Acceptance. And I've been Really emphasizing the word acceptance a lot in, in Buddhist practice over these last years because it seems we have such a tremendous conditioning to do the opposite, to resist our moment to moment experience. Uh, it's the fundamental zone of resistance that we have is that we actually have this di- aversion to ourselves and to what's happening inside us. And I've noticed, I'm a clinical psychologist, that um, over the years, working with students, working with clients, in my own inner experience, that probably the most pervasive version of suffering that we have in the West is the suffering of feeling that something's wrong with us, that we're in some way not good enough, that we're falling short. And sometimes it's really overt and sometimes it's subtle But in the moments when we've turned on ourselves, when we're in some way computing that something's not okay about us, we're not at home. We can't be at home in our own bodies, in our own hearts. We can't be at home with each other. There's an author from the Maryland area where I live who wrote a book called All Sickness is Homesickness. And... I, I, the book is very good but the title's fantastic, you know, mm-hmm. All Sickness is Homesickness. So I've begun over time to sense uh, this experience so many people have of not okay, something's wrong, as a trance of unworthiness. And I call it a trance because it's sometimes below the level of consciousness and yet in any moment that we're not in a good mood or that we're in some way off balance with others, if we look closely we can very often find that deep down we feel like we're failing in some ways. I was um, at Naropa a few weeks ago teaching about this, teaching about the practices of radical acceptance, the practices really of compassion and mindfulness that help to wake us up from trance and they did a flyer to announce me coming, and it had a picture of me, and underneath the picture it said, Something is wrong with me. <laughs> what an entree to a new place when you're teaching, you know. <laughs> so it becomes really a powerful inquiry to start sensing, you know, am I accepting myself just as I am? And even the words accepting myself are very, can be confusing because we're not accepting a story of self that we've generated, are we able to accept this moment's experience just as it is? I love this by Thomas Merton. Of what avail is it if we can travel to the moon, if we cannot cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? This is the most important of all journeys, and without it, All of the rest are useless. I was speaking about this at a retreat some years ago, about how when we've turned on our inner life, we really feel a fundamental disconnection from the world, and it stops us from being able to be intimate you know if we think something's wrong with me we assume that others even if right now they don't see what's wrong if they get to know us they'll find out you know and it's very its very hard to trust that we'll be accepted and loved and it's also very hard to take risks because when we think something's wrong with me we're really afraid of making mistakes that becomes a really big deal It's very hard to take risks in our life we find that we become very controlled and we have to stay in a very familiar arena because something's wrong with me and I might really blow it. There's a sense that around the corner things can go very very wrong. So I was describing this at a retreat and one of the men at the retreat um, came to me and he said you know what this reminds me of? In my life you know he said that I feel so unworthy that it's very hard to have a you know, successful long term relationship. It was hard for him to be able to really move forward playing the guitar, which was one of his passions, or to do a lot of things that really mattered to him. He said it re- he reminded himself of this tiger that had been at the DC uh, National Zoo for many years, a tiger named Mohini, a regal white tiger that was put in the lion cage there, this 12 by 12 enclosure with iron bars And Mohini would just pace back and forth, back and forth. Finally, the naturalists and the zoologists and the staff at the zoo built her this incredible habitat, you know, with fields and trees and a pond and so on. And it was with great excitement that they released Mohini into her new home. And she went to a corner of that compound, and for the rest of her life, she paced until there was a worn strip, 12 by 12, in the corner of the compound. And the reason that um, story moved me so much was because my sense is that for each of us, every one of us here, we intuit the what the Buddha described, our Buddha nature. We intuit the possibility of really being free, of loving without holding back. You know, really living in a very wakeful way. And yet we see how every day we get caught up in our conditioning. Every single day we get caught in smaller stories about who we are and what we need to do next. We're always kind of leaning into the future on our way somewhere else. How few moments we really arrive and live in that wakefulness, and love that is our true nature. The Buddha taught that the essence of our suffering is that we forget who we are. He said we all have Buddha nature and we suffer because we don't recognize it. We don't realize that. And it's really interesting if we just look at today for instance. You know, how many moments of today Were we caught up in some idea of what needed to get done or some worry about what wasn't going to happen or some trying to get somewhere else? And how many moments were we really feeling that sense of presence that cherishes this moment, feels the breath and feels the being we're with and really listens and feels alive in these bodies? So that's the predicament that the Buddha described, that we are conditioned to leave, to not be at home, and yet we have the capacity, the awareness to wake up. There's a story um, in Washington, one of the Waldorf schools. My son went to a Waldorf school. One of the teachers told a story about um, that there was a kindergarten art class and the teacher was walking around looking at the children's artwork and one, children was work, one child was working diligently on something, and the teacher said, So, hon, what, what's that you're drawing? And the child said, Well, I'm drawing God. And, and the teacher said, Well, Han, you know, nobody knows what God looks like. And without skipping a beat, the child said, They will in a moment, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: the Buddha was quite... Um, simple and articulate about how this conditioning to forget takes place. He said we are all born with this perception of separation and this isn't just humans and it's not not some mistake, it's biological The single-celled organism. There's this membrane that says this is inside, that's outside and then all the conditioning to enhance and expand and enlarge our being all the conditioning to defend against danger is whipped into action. In humans, because of our cerebral cortex and we have all these stories about the separate self, rather than just that existential sense that something's wrong, I need more, something's missing, the something's wrong feeling gets attached to self. There's something wrong with me. And that's the... That's the kind of squeeze that we live with. It's an interesting question. Am I accepting myself just as I am in this moment? Or another way of saying it, is anything wrong right now? The challenge is we have all these ideas, all these standards in our mind about what it means to be an okay person, a good person, a spiritual person, and I can speak for myself. I'm aware of how I'm continuously monitoring. And there's some part of me that's going, so how's it going now? How am I doing now? You know. And then there's, you know, it might not be conscious, but there's some sense of how it should be and a, the distance, the gap. This is called spiritual fitness. If you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can understand when loved ones are too busy to give you time, if you can overlook when people take things out on you, when when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, then you are probably a dog. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting that it seems that the feelings of unworthiness are really more pervasive in our culture than in many others. in contrast to a tribal society, let's say, where there's a kind of natural way of belonging. We don't have to jump through hoops. We don't have to prove ourselves so much. In our culture, it's very competitive. It's very fast paced. Being an industrial growth society, the message is always, and this is what drives the economy and advertising and our personal lives is be more, be better, be bigger, be greater, make more money, consume more. I know in Washington, D.C., they have an annual T-shirt award. And a couple of years ago, the winner was, I have occasional delusions of adequacy. <laughs> yeah. Some of you might remember Jules Pfeiffer, cartoonist. He wrote, I grew up to have my father's looks, my father's speech patterns, my father's posture, my father's walk my father's opinions and my mother's contempt for my father.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. Here's what what's sad is that there's a message that gets transmitted through our culture through through our parents and which is in some way that we can't trust our natural self that that how and this is most everybody I know even very mature parents they're still because of their fear about how it's going to work out for us there's messages we each get on what how we need to be in order to be acceptable or worthwhile or lovable and the messages are sometimes be special definitely don't be needy you know look a certain way act a certain way and what happens is that inevitably we grow up feeling a sense of falling short. One story that really moved me heard some years ago of a little girl going to a restaurant with her parents and the waitress came and took their orders and the parents made their orders and the little six-year-old pipes up, well, I'll have hot dogs, french fries and a Coke. And then the father says, oh, no, she won't. She'll have mashed potatoes and meatloaf and milk. And then the waitress turned to the little girl and said, Sohan, what do you want on that hot dog? And then she laughed. The family was stunned. And she and the little girl turned to her parents and said, you know, she thinks I'm real. My sense is that that's one of our deepest longings, you know, from, from a very kind of right core place is this sense that we really want to be real. We want to feel our realness. We want to be with each other and be authentic. And um, yet if we have a sense that there's something wrong, we get forced to try to compensate and to cover up. I, I've come to call it a kind of, we acquire a kind of spacesuit. You know, early on we get the messages of how you are is not okay and then we develop these strategies to show that we're okay, to make ourselves into the person other people want us to be. And what's sad is we become identified with that spacesuit. We, we forget really that, that inner essence. We each have our own particular set of strategies. Usually it involves busyness and producing. We all have these self-improvement projects that we're involved with. You know, the, in the Chinese script, the word for busy is heart-killing. You know, we, we armor ourselves because we're try, we're racing away from the moment because we're not okay as we are. And what's interesting is we seem to transplant our strategies into spiritual practice. In other words, the trance of unworthiness doesn't all of a sudden go away once we become a card-carrying Buddhist or whatever else we, we join or become. I know for myself, I um, moved into an ashram, a spiritual community, when I was maybe 21, and I took my type A striving behavior and became a type A yogi type and um, you know worked really hard to become more perfect. Uh, this is the way Garrison Keillor puts it. He says, my ancestors were Puritans from England. They arrived here in 1648 in the hope of finding greater restrictions than were permissible under English law <laughs> at that time. <laughs> So this is ripples from Eden, right? You know, it's it's like we have this guiding myth in our psyches and the message of the myth is that there's something inherently flawed, we are kicked out, we don't belong, but we have to work really hard to try to enter the garden again, to try to um, regain or redeem ourselves. Carl Jung described quite Beautifully, the difference between an immature kind of spirituality whereby there's always a sense of climbing this ladder of perfection, you know, trying to be a better, more perfect, more polished self, you know. And in contrast to that, turning around and embracing this life in all its messiness and confusion and depression and mystery and beauty. So it's the difference, it's the shift of being on a path towards perfection versus a path towards wholeness. And I think that's quite an important shift. When I went to my first Buddhist retreat, I remember early on one of the teachers said that the boundary to what you accept is the boundary to your freedom. And it really set me in saying, okay, so what is it I'm not accepting? And anything I touched on, whether it was the ache in my back or I wasn't accepting how I was meditating, I was lost in too much fantasy and I was not able to concentrate. And and then, you know, on the home front, I was imperfect as a mother and on and on. And I could sense that every time I sensed this something's wrong feeling, the feeling of armoring and separation... And contraction. It just became so clear. So I was very drawn to Buddhism because the practices of, in, in, that we learn in Vipassana are so directly geared to awakening us from that trance and to guiding us into this moment in a way that we really embrace what's happening. You know, I, um, I'm using the word acceptance and it's, it can be sometimes have different interpretations or ideas that it brings up. So let me ask you to do a brief reflection and maybe we can together sense more exactly what does is, what is the word mean? What's the power of the word? So if you will, just come sitting in a way that you can turn your attention inward. and take a moment this is I consider this the actually the first step of radical acceptance just to sense this as a moment of pausing in other words to step out of thinking and busyness of mind to come into stillness and in these next few moments let your intention be quite simply to accept your experience just as it is. Notice what it is to just accept this moment as it is. And this moment. and this one. What is it to accept? What does it mean? What happens? What did you notice? What for you is acceptance? What has to be in place for it to be a moment of acceptance? Anyone? Let's just hear from a few people. Okay, so there has to be a quality of presence. Good. And can you say just a few more words on what does it mean to be present? I mean, how do you know when you're present? okay so so here's a quality in order to be accepting the moment we need to be present not often concepts thoughts ideas thank you what else yes instead of no yes instead of no that in that moment whatever's going on there's an agreeing saying yes to it versus a A willingness to let go. So if there's so if you encounter a holding on, accepting that moment is a willingness to release the grip a bit. Yeah. Good. There's no right answer, by the way. Just so in case you're thinking, oh well everyone else named it, there's nothing else. Whatever you noticed. Being completely free
1: of worrying about somebody telling me I'm
0: doing it wrong. Ah. A moment of complete acceptance is there's no uh, there's no other voice or fear that somebody's going to say you're doing it wrong nice yeah yeah just to experience what's
1: there
0: just to experience what's there so in a direct non-conceptual way really touching that moment yeah good anyone else yeah please to notice where there's not acceptance, where there's an unwillingness, exactly. Yeah, this is all good, yeah. You're doing it right. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's take this and group it a little bit in terms of the language of the Buddha. The Buddha taught that really awareness has two qualities or there's two wings to awareness and with both wings we awaken. And one wing is the wing of understanding, of clear seeing. That in order to accept this moment we need to recognize what's going on. We need to see what's happening clearly in just this moment. We can't be off in thoughts, we can't be planning the future. We can't accept what we don't recognize. So one wing is to recognize what's going on, that quality of presence. The other wing, is a quality of what sometimes described as compassion or softening or allowing or releasing resistance or saying yes so it's to see what's true and meet it with acceptance with kindness with tenderness there's two questions I find that are really useful that, that actually address these which is quite simply what is happening this moment inside me You know, if you just close your eyes, what is happening right this moment inside me? And can I be with this? You can add on, can I be with this with tenderness or kindness if that resonates? But these are the two wings to notice with clear seeing what is here right now and to meet it with kindness. And these are the two wings that the Buddha um, expressed when he was under the Bodhi tree in Mara, which is really the shadow side, which is our conditioning, you know, attacked. So the Buddha was there sitting and Mara emerged, the wants and the fears and anger and so on. And the Buddha met Mara with the two wings, seeing what was true and meeting it with compassion. And Mara, although Mara vanished for the time being, as many of you know in the story of the Buddha, not for good it isn't the case for any of us either, right? We might feel quite free at some time, but the conditioning resurrects itself. So Mara would appear again when the Buddha was addressing a group perhaps, and the Buddha's attendant, Ananda's response was, oh no, the evil one is here, right? But the Buddha would say, no, no, Ananda. And instead his response was, I see you, Mara. That's the wing of clear seeing. And come into tea. Yes. It's meeting him with compassion. I think we all probably intuit that acceptance is a liberating path, and that it's not—it's a great idea until we run into something that feels very unacceptable. You know, <laughs> same thing is said with forgiveness. It's, it's a great idea until we really have something to forgive, right? So a story for you, some of you might have, um, this is in the book, and it was one of the kind of seminal experiences I had working with a student who was had been practicing Vipassana for maybe 15 years and was a clinical psychologist and was in the mid-stages of Alzheimer's. And um, he was attending a retreat with his wife because he couldn't get himself dressed or cut his food and so on. And came into an interview, perhaps it was the second day of the retreat, and I asked him, well, so how's it going? And his response was filled with, he had some interest about his condition, he knew what was going on, Um, some fear, some sadness, a real streak of mischief, because a lot of strange things were happening to him. And so I kind of asked him, well, what gives? I mean, what's letting you meet this with such resilience? And his response was, I don't think anything's wrong you know it's difficult but it's not wrong and and he went on to tell me how um, very early on in the onset he had um, been asked to give a talk to a group of maybe a hundred or so students and right at the beginning when he first arrived and he was about to start he completely went blank I mean he he had no idea of what he was going to say not only he didn't know what he was doing there so he had this sea of expectant faces and he was. J- so here's what he did. First he paused. He just. He put his palms together and he just started naming what was going on inside him. Okay, fear. And he'd bow. Confusion. Shame. Shame. Heat. Heart pounding. And each time he'd name something, he'd kind of bow. And over some time, then he started ease, relaxing. At the end, this took a while, but he looked around and, you know, he apologized, said, I'm sorry. And as you can imagine, many of the students had tears in their eyes. And one of them said, you know, no one has ever shared the Dharma with us this way. And what had he done? He had really met his life, met those moments with radical acceptance, with the courage of acceptance where he is seeing what was happening and he really was bowing to it. He was really honoring his experience. I think a bowing is another way of saying yes. There's other words like, this too, is a beautiful expression. This too, or it's okay, you know. So he didn't make anything wrong. What happens with us when we start investigating? And you might think in your own mind of, well, what is a circumstance in your life where it brings up feelings that are just really unacceptable? Maybe thoughts or obsessive thoughts or feelings of jealousy or anger. That's a big one for many of us. It brings up a sense of compulsion. It's very hard for us to accept our addictive tendencies when we go to the stuff that really feels unacceptable it's, it's an important investigation to notice what makes us so unwilling to name that and say this too because you know if, if it was easy we would embrace our lives but it's not and what I find is that when I work with students or clients you know even students that say what's unacceptable is that I come to retreat and my mind is off in thoughts all the time that's unacceptable And and if I accepted that, you know what would happen? I'd be off in thoughts even more. It's a sense that if we accept how it is right now, not only will we not change, it'll get worse. So that's one of the beliefs we have. We have a belief that if we accept, it's kind of like resigning or becoming passive. And yet it's quite to the contrary. Carl Rogers, the psychologist, said the paradox was it wasn't until... I accepted myself just as I was, that I was free to change. It's a gateway to freedom. And yet we have these beliefs based on the mistrust. We don't trust that our natural intelligence and our longing to awaken is going to unfold itself. We mistrust ourselves and think if we accept this moment, something terrible might happen are that if we accept this moment we'll get really passive we won't be able to respond to the world you know I um, I've been giving a lot of these um, doing a lot of interviews on radios and um, in one of the interviews recently because I'm a peace activist we've been very very active in Washington the, um, the person interviewing me said but you know you're a peace activist how can you believe in acceptance of how things are right now I mean, does that mean you accept that we went to war with Iraq or does it mean you accept that we're cutting down old growth forests? And So she was really saying, well, what is acceptance? And I had to keep explaining that acceptance, we're not accepting harmful behaviors. We're not condoning or giving the green light for something that causes harm. All we can accept is this moment's experience. And what happens if we don't, you know? I described how over these last months, and this is a daily event, and um, sometimes I'm better about it than others, I'll read the newspaper and contract into a place of anger and self-righteousness and blame, and it's not acceptance. It's like I'm pointing the finger at certain individuals that I think are the cause of our problems, that kind of thing. So what I've taken to doing and this again is the practice of radical acceptance, is I'll stop reading and I'll just say, okay, so what is going on this moment? Pause and pay attention. It's anger. And if I stay with the anger and bring acceptance to the anger that's there, in other words, let go of the story, feel it in my body, what unfolds itself is fear. You know, I'm afraid that our world is going to be destroyed. And then if I stay with that, and again, feel it, just the way this man with Alzheimer's, feel it and really bow to let that be there. fear, fear, feel it in my body, the throat, the clutching in the heart. Underneath that is caring, that I care about the world. And once I've arrived at that, I can keep reading the paper, and yet, and I'm going to be then digesting and... and and responding from a place of caring not from a kind of angry activity about pointing that has to do with pointing a finger and when we formed a Buddhist peace fellowship in our area that was kind of a guiding principle that you know as with many of the peace groups not to be strident and angry and reactive but really to act from peace it's as Gandhi said to be the change we want to create It's not until we accept this moment just as it is that we're free to move into the next from a place of clarity and compassion. Otherwise, if we're rejecting this moment, we're rejecting our experience, it's going to be with a tight heart, it's going to be ending up fueling the cycles of violence. So the practice is to pause, to ask what is happening this moment in my body, in my heart, And can I meet this with kindness? Now the challenge, just to say, is that sometimes we feel too regressed. You know, we feel too small, too angry, or too terrified to meet what's going on with a quality of kindness. And the metta practice, the loving-kindness practice, helps to reconnect us with a sense of of softness and care. I remember one student was described himself as the most judgmental person in the world in in an interview, and then he went on to prove his point, and he might have been, you know, he was pretty judgmental. But the way we practiced was he'd feel judgments, and I'd say, okay, so, you know, if the judgment wasn't there, what would you have to be feeling right now? You know, what's behind that? And he's fear. And I said, how long have you been judging yourself like this? For my whole life. And that's when he could start sensing a little kindness towards himself. When we realize that we really are living with suffering. So for him, along with the message of Metta, it was just suggested that he put his hand on his heart and just offer kindness towards, towards himself. And he was sitting kind of in the front row and he had his hand plastered to his heart for the whole retreat because the only judgments came up by the end of the retreat. Here's what he reported. He said, the judgments didn't stop. He still felt them really, you know, kind of vicious judgments. But the shift was, rather than being the judger or the judged, he felt like he was the awareness and the tenderness that was bringing... Um, a quality of presence to the moment and this is the shift that the Buddha talked about this is the what becomes possible when we bring an accepting presence to the moment that we step out of that small self identity that's living in a story of something's wrong and we start inhabiting the awareness it's like we become the ocean that has room for the waves to come and go Now here's the next step of the challenge that sometimes even putting our hand on our heart or sending a message of metta and those of you that have done a lot of metta practice know sometimes we feel absolutely disconnected that our heart is like a stone and it feels like a travesty. It feels like we really have no tenderness towards ourself at all. And then, in those times, it becomes really important to understand radical acceptance, not as a solo path, that we're here trying to make that spiritual muscle so we can make room for our own experience, but that we need the help and support of others. Just as the, the Buddha talked about seeking refuge, we need to seek refuge in loving relationships. We need to have the support of a therapist or a friend, we need to really feel a sense of belonging to something larger. I'll give you another example of how radical acceptance emerged but not because somebody was able to sit with their own experience. And I think this is important because often our message that we think we're getting in the Buddhist teachings is to, you know, develop this power of heart and awareness so that we can get through any experience and wake up and we really need support. We're not meant to do it alone. One woman who was just beginning practice uh, went to therapy with her adult daughter. She and her adult daughter were in therapy and in the process of therapy what emerged, what she found out about it, is that her daughter had been sexually abused for a number of years growing up by this woman's then husband. And as you can imagine, she went into an eno- the enormous amount of rage and an enormous amount of anguish and the most searing kind of self-hatred that could be possible because she had been clueless and therefore it allowed something horrible to happen to her daughter. And she felt suicidal, you know, that, that this had gone on. and So she went to see a Jesuit priest who was um, had, she had known from her college years and he listened to her describe what what she was going through and he took her hand in his and he drew a circle right in the center of her palm and he said this is where you're living right now and it's a place of kicking and screaming and anguish and you have to be able to touch that you have to feel it but try also to remember this And he, he covered her hand with his palm and he said this is the kingdom of mercy you know, this is the field of compassion or forgiveness, you know. And it's when you can feel this, feel the anguish, but also remember this, that you will realize a freedom you've never known. So this is what she did for for several weeks when she would hit that place of torment, and it was torment. She'd remember the sense of the priest's hand over her. She'd remember this sense of that there was some forgiving energy in the universe, and she belonged to that. And it wasn't that she was turning her face away from her own human imperfections, but she was also taking into consideration there was some basic decency in her being, that she was forgivable. She needed that reminder from the outside. And then, gradually with practice, as she described it, it really became Vipassana, that she was feeling the ways of experience, And sensing it held in a very tender, open awareness, it was her own—the kingdom of mercy was her own awakened heart. So, do you see that initially she really needed that mirroring and that container, and that that holding of another being, and of a sense of the kingdom of mercy that was outside her? And it was through that she began to rediscover the possibility of her own goodness and the awareness they could recognize that was her own. We all get small, we all feel disconnected and at times need to have a pathway to remember our belonging, every one of us, whether it's through nature or somebody that we love and trust. I'll frequently invoke the bodhisattva of compassion, Kuan Yin. And just since Kuan Yin is this kind of radiant field of compassion, that's surrounding me and I'm small and just, you know, let myself be held by this, be seen or are loved by that field of energy. And then gradually sense that I'm dissolving into that and then realize that yes, this, this is who I am. But at first I need to invoke and call on. This is relka. I yearn to belong to something, to be contained In an all-embracing mind that sees me as a single thing, I yearn to be held in the great hands of your heart. Oh, let them take me now. Into them I place these fragments my life. And you, God, spend them however you want. So this path of radical acceptance is one of seeing what's true inside us in any given moment and meeting it with kindness. And often in order to do that we need to sense our belonging to something larger. It's said that the ground of Buddhism is compassion. And the ground of compassion is compassion towards ourselves. And by ourselves we mean towards the life that's unfolding, this body-mind conditioning that's unfolding. And that on the Bodhisattva path, this is the path of awakening beings, as we begin to, moment by moment, regard our unfolding experience with tenderness, we discover the space and the greatness of heart that courage and love that really can hold all beings. So Rilke describes it as widening circles of compassion. It takes training in the same way that we train ourselves to sense where we're unwilling and unforgiving towards ourselves and begin to to see the vulnerability that's within us, see the goodness, hold ourselves with tenderness, That same training is what the Bodhisattva does with other beings. Our habit, because our habit is to feel separate, is to turn each other into unreal others. That's our reflex. Our reflex is to create a category. We meet somebody and we have, it's mostly unconscious, all these categories that they fit into of what kind of person we think they are and who we are vis-a-vis them. We're better, we're worse, we're more powerful, we're less. We want more out of them, they want more out of us it goes through very quickly. Attraction and aversion, barely conscious are sometimes glaringly conscious. We detect difference, race, gender, socioeconomic. We are very quickly turning others into unreal others because in the moment that someone's in one of those categories, we can't see who's here. In the same way that when we're judging ourselves, We cannot be at home in our own being. We cannot be intimate. We cannot register and take in another being once we've classified and distanced in that way. And the more we feel separate, the more we do it quickly. Definitely we do it when others disagree with us. (laughs) You know, there's a saying that the world is divided into those who believe they're right and that's it that we're all, we all believe it. (laughs) Here, a Taoist master was sitting naked in his mountain cabin meditating. A group of Confucianists entered the door of his hut having hiked up the mountain intending to lecture him on the rules of proper conduct. When they saw the sage sitting naked before them they were shocked and asked, what are you doing sitting in your hut without any pants on? The sage replied, this entire universe is my hut. This little hut is my pants. What are you fellows doing inside my
1: pants?
0: (laughs) When we can't see the realness of another, when their beliefs or their appearance or anything creates that separation, and and the judgment is what separates, we can hurt another person, we can kill another person, We can steal from another person. We know it. We can go to war and kill others if it feels like a high-tech football game or something. If we cannot sense the humanness, the vulnerability, the real vulnerability of another, then we really cannot regard them with acceptance and with tenderness. So the training, the Bodhisattva training, is to be able to see through all our own conditioning to create separation and to look into another being's eyes and really sense you know, this being like myself is insecure. I mean, every one of us is afraid and we're afraid of each other some, you know. This being wants to be happy. This being does not want to suffer. One man had taken a training in mindfulness-based stress reduction and um, you know knew about pausing and coming home to his experience and he described being in a supermarket and he was a kind of impatient and forceful person and he was in a long line and the woman in front of him only had one item and it wasn't an express line so he got to judging you know here she is, she has one item she was carrying a baby It was her turn. She hands the baby to the clerk. They coo and oo and ah. And he's going nuts, you know, like I'm a busy person and, you know, what are they doing? But then he remembered, you know, he said, okay, pause, soften my hands, breathe, come home again. Then he looked at the child and saw that the child was really a sweetie. And when it was his turn, he said to the clerk, you know, that was a beautiful baby. And she beamed back at him and she said, you know, that's my baby. Actually, actually, you see, my husband was in the Air Force but he was killed last year. So now my mother takes care of him and brings him in once or twice a day so I can see him.
1: You
0: know, I... Sometimes we hear hear things like that and we go, yeah, but you know, not everybody's going around with that kind of a a loss. But the truth is we all are. You know, every one of us is in a body that's getting older and we're gonna each lose this life, this form. We're gonna lose the beings we love and most of us have already some. And we're in an inherently insecure existence, you know. So we're all vulnerable and there's a beauty in being able to look at each other this isn't to be for pity this is to sense here we are in the same predicament each one of us it's to see what's true this is the bodhisattva training we can accept each other if we see what's true if we see the vulnerability we get tender we can accept each other when we remember you know it's impermanent it's all passing so fast I went to a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh um, some years ago and he taught a hug that was a very beautiful ritual and it began where you'd stand with your partner and bring your palms together and say Namaste you know I see the divine, I see the beloved in you so that's the beginning of the hug and then you hold the person and there's three breaths and then the first breath it's oh, I'm going to die and then it's you're going to die and then it's, and we have just these precious moments together. And I sometimes wonder if we just slowed down some and sensed our child or our parent or our friend and what it would be like to just live with that kind of a recognition because, you know, it's really true. When, when somebody dies, we really get it that, we, that you know, it really is short and that there's so many moments that we're skimming the surface and we're not really touching in. So our acceptance really deepens when we see the vulnerability, we see the impermanence, and it deepens when we learn to see the beauty. We're in the habit so often of um, looking for what's wrong inside us and each other that we often don't just pull the veils and really... Just sense the goodness, the awareness, the love that's within each being. So this is the training. Maybe, if you will, we'll do a bit of a, a little bit of a meditation that um, actually brings this alive a little. just to say that in the moment that we embrace the life within us, that we really meet, see what's true and, and meet it with tenderness, or in the moment that we're with another being and we hold that sense of their being and aliveness, there really is that shift that the Buddha talked about of awakening from a small self just so you might experiment with yourself and just sense in a moment of complete acceptance is there any separate self there? Acceptance cannot be mental we can't accept with our mind we can only accept with our full being and in the moment that with our full being we just touch just what's happening we're no longer caught in the identity of a small self we've enlarged to become that awareness, that ocean that's cradling the waves. So right now, let this be a pause. Just feel, if you will, your body and your breath. take a moment, if you will, to sense within your own being at this stage of your life or this evening where the vulnerability is. Where for you, you can sense a feeling of perhaps it's fear about something that's going on in your life. Sadness about a loss. Anger, irritation. Irritation. Toward someone, judgment towards your own imperfections. Just sense where it's difficult. We each have areas where there's some difficulty. And just sense what might be the worst thing about that situation. Perhaps it's a physical disease. just feel the wanting and the fearing that just the humanity and the vulnerability of your own being and you might gently place your hand on your heart we don't do this so much in our culture and it's so powerful it's quite a, a beautiful thing and sense that with your touch and you might vary your touch a little so that you feel that you're actually communicating tenderness with your touch Thich Han says the words that are so healing, darling, I care about this suffering. And even if it's not full-blown suffering, I care about this, this vulnerability. So we begin to establish a different way of relating to our inner life. And to sense also now the goodness of this being, of this life. Sensing, perhaps, your generosity, your way of loving others, your humor, that you want to be free, that you want to wake up. And if it helps to bring to mind someone that loves you dearly and look through that person's eyes, just to deepen that sense, of the goodness that's here. Meeting this life with clear seeing and with tenderness. Offering yourself whatever prayer of care you'd like. And then bringing to mind someone that is close to you, that you care about. And letting that person be here in the room. Just sense their presence, see this person's face, see their eyes. Take a moment to sense this person's vulnerability, the disappointments, the losses, the fears that are part of this person's humanity so that you can sense your care for that being in that compassionate, tender way. You might imagine that you can just touch your hand to their cheek and say, darling, I care about this suffering. and also sense this being's goodness. See the look in their eyes, the light, the love, the way they express it. Their humor, their goodness. And just send whatever prayer of care you'd like for this being. And then bringing to mind someone who brings up a little difficult feeling in you. Some fear, some anger. doesn't have to be someone that's been abusive in a major way, but someone where there's a little difficulty. And if you'd like, you can either relax your hand down or whatever you'd like to do with your hands, fine. But sense this person right here. And sense what comes up in you when you bring to mind this person and bring to mind the difficulty. So that first you just bring an accepting presence, a tenderness to your own reaction. That's the first step. It's okay, forgiven, forgiven, just to your own reaction to this person. Feel where your own fears or hurts or impatience Where irritation lives. And just to forgive that for being there, it's just part of being human. And then to bring your attention to this person and see if you can see their vulnerability, where they're hurting, where they're afraid, and also their goodness that this person too wants to be happy, wants to be free, doesn't want to suffer. Offering your wish for this being, your prayer. And then widening the circles of compassion now for these last few moments, if you will, to let whoever comes to mind, friend, family, someone at work, just see if you can sense the realness of that being and hold them with a quality of tenderness. Thomas Merton writes, then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depth of their hearts where neither sin nor knowledge could reach, the core of reality, the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more need for war, for hatred, for greed, for greed cruelty I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other last few moments just to let go of thoughts of all others thoughts of anything and just simply meet these moments with the wakefulness and the kindness of radical acceptance Just these moments. Namaste. So, what I'd like to do, I know it's it's a little bit late, but just take a few minutes to see if there's any questions. Yeah, please.
2: There's a source of self aversion that I was hoping you would address, and you didn't mention it very briefly in passing the subject, and that is. Aging. Uh, when you begin aging, you don't have to be conditioned that there's something wrong with you. There are things wrong with you. You discover <laughs> you know, a new deficit every day. Uh, your joints hurt when you get up in position, your hair changes color and falls out, your eyes stop accommodating, <laughs> you grow cataracts, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are things wrong with you. And, and you always have that memory of the slimmer, younger, more energetic you compare yourself to so that the deficits are very clear. Um, The real problem with accepting it, if it were just a condition like you had flu or something, you could accept that. But deeply accepting that really means you're accepting death. You're accepting, this is the dying process that I embarked on when it's become more obvious than when I was just born. (laughs)
1: Uh,
2: But that is a Kind of acceptance that I think needs special attention. Maybe you're too young a teacher to deal with it. yet. Well, I'm very
0: flattered. You would think so. <laughs> um, actually, I think that that's the very uh, that's the very core of radical acceptance is that we're accepting impermanence and death. <coughs> that there's no such thing as acceptance unless we're accepting that because most of our fears and most of our struggles have to do with fear of death and so that any real letting go and letting be is is a willingness to embrace this passing changing life I mean Suzuki Roshi said it's not like we really have to renounce anything just accept the fact that all things pass it doesn't really matter what age we are it's as it's, it's, it's hard I think to accept the death of a, a, a loved one as it is to sense our own bodies aging it's part of us goes with them so it's a death um, so then the question is well isn't it real that yes these bodies are getting achy and the cataracts and the mind I mean that's, my, that's why I told the story about Alzheimer's because that's a real death the death of our access to you know and My way of understanding it is that it's true that there's unpleasantness and there's true that there's loss, but it doesn't make it wrong. That there's nothing more wrong about death than there is about birth. And that if we can begin to meet the truth of this changing life in a moment-to-moment way, our identity is no longer so hitched to what must by nature change. And what we discover, and this is what the Buddha described, really as the freedom that's possible is that while the waves take shape and we identify as a constellation of let's say waves in the ocean, really our nature is the ocean and that the waves come and go and there's a, um, an awareness and a love that is there, that's our true identity and we really can't abide in that as long as we're hitched to any changing facet of experience. So the power of radical acceptance is it frees us to realize the truth of our of our buddha nature. But it's not easy because just as you said it means facing and embracing what we have the conditioning to say no to. I don't want it. So I'm I'm grateful. That's a beautiful way toward at the end of a night to beautiful thing to bring up because it brings it right down to the depth. So thank you. <laughs> yeah um any anything else that anybody would like to bring up any other light questions for tonight <laughs> Yes um, have you made a CD with some of these meditations Yeah there's um Sounds True has it it's it's called radical self acceptance but um there's only a few. The book uh, that is being sold tonight actually has um, all of them in there. There's one at the end of each chapter. And one from Sounds True is fantastic.: also. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? there 's two two ways I, I have some people that actually, with their friends or their partners, one will read it read them to the other it 's really a beautiful way of connecting, and the other is um, you can read it into a tape recorder and then tape it and, 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 and play it back. But the truth is that they 're all very um, they 're intuitive in other words let 's say there 's a meditation on um, Saying yes to your experience, and it's and it's really juxtaposes how we say no and all the ways our body and mind tighten, and how we say yes and how we begin to embrace. And once you've read it, it actually comes naturally that you start noticing in any given moment that you really can say yes or this too. So some of them are just you'll just kind of internalize, and others you might want to tape. Yeah, thank you. I'm sorry. Are you speaking other places in the Bay Area? I've been speaking a lot. I've I've already was in Berkeley and San Francisco. I'm in Spirit Rock, so now I'm I'm leaving town. I'm leaving, yeah, yeah. But I I I teach at Spirit Rock, like usually every other year for a while. You're all invited to come to the Blue Ridge Mountains, the Shenandoah, if you want to do a week-long retreat with us there worth flying for a week, don't you think? Yeah. Um, the next one, um, well, we have one in the, we have one every fall and every spring, and then we also have a New Year's retreat. So um, this um, fall, Philip Not Moffat, do some of you know Philip Moffat? Will be teaching with me, um, and it's very easy to come. You just fly right into Dulles, and we'll get you rides. Dulles is outside in Virginia, outside of Washington. And then the one in the spring, uh, Eugene Cash will be teaching with me. Some of you might know Eugene Cash. Um, and then the following fall, James Brez. So come on out. it would be fun to have you guys, <laughs> really. Um, so thank you again. Um, I will stay around a bit. If anyone has questions or would like a book signed or whatever, be pleasure to meet you more individually but it's really been incredible to be here giving me ideas about I can take home to our community in Washington and know that you've got a sister community out there it's kind of fun so thank you